Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Even if global warming is happening and we are causing a significant part of it, and even if that's bad, and I think those are all three rather uncertain claims, they might be true, but I don't think we can say them with a high degree of confidence. What do we do about it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. With me today is Professor Daniel Bonavac, Professor of Philosophy at UT Austin. Welcome, Professor Bonavac. Oh, thank you very much. Professor Bonavac recently gave a lecture on climate change at the Austin Institute. And by the time you listen to this podcast, that lecture should be already on your YouTube channel. The title was climate change, scientific, and ideological disagreements. Before we start talking about the content of the lecture that we offered with the theme of our great divides, and we want to talk about it during our podcast because, I mean, as people listening to this podcast in Texas know, climate might seem like it is changing, maybe. I don't know. This is a question I have for Professor Bonavac because we had an incredible snowstorm at a time where that shouldn't have happened. But before we get started, Professor Bonnebeck, would you like to tell our audience a few words about yourself? Yes, yes. I've been a philosophy professor at the University of Texas for 40 years now. I got my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, which was and remains renowned as a center for the philosophy of science. Before that, I went to Haverford College, where I majored in philosophy, but I also did a lot of math and physics, and specifically physics related to climate issues. I did some research on that, and in fact, my first published paper was actually a paper on climate change, one that I gave at a conference while I was still an undergraduate. But I decided to go in a different direction for graduate school and studied essentially problems related to the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mathematics. And that's what I specialized in for my PhD. If I may ask, why didn't you, since climate change seems to be a passion still, why didn't you go into that, go deeper into that as in your academic career? Yeah, mostly because I thought that there simply wasn't enough data of high enough quality to make significant advances in the field. A lot of the physical processes that are involved are very interesting and very complex. That's part of what I want to talk about today. And so the physics part is quite intriguing, but we really only have surface temperature measurements that we can trust going back to, at the earliest in some places, the 1870s. Well, there are a few locations on Earth for which we can go back much further, but not very many. Satellite data only exists from 1979. At the time I was in school in the early 1970s, that didn't even exist. And so it seemed to me that it would just be a long time before we had sufficient data to reach any firm conclusions or to know what the magnitude of some of these effects are. Climate is an incredibly complex system with a lot of feedback loops, a lot of natural limitations, but also a danger uh, that certain things can go out of equilibrium. And we really, in my opinion, then, and it's only been confirmed by what's happened since, 
We simply don't have enough data yet to reach firm conclusions about any of that. We can say, here's a feedback loop, here's a, a mechanism that will tend toward equilibrium. But under exactly what conditions will it bring us back toward equilibrium? What might throw it out of equilibrium? How strong are the various effects that are impacting this system all at once? It seemed to me, certainly in the 70s, it was there was no way to reach a firm conclusion about any of that. We're in a better position now. In some ways, we have more data, although it's still a small amount compared to geologic timeframes. But we have the data quality is something that I'll talk a little bit about. It's hard to assess in a lot of cases. And so I, I think it will be a while before one can really do research in this area in a way that is as fruitful as I want. Now, you might say, wait, you wanted your research to be fruitful, so you went into the philosophy of mathematics? Uh, that's uh, maybe not the most highly applicable field. Yeah, at least you have a long history there. Exactly. We have a long history. We go back at least to Euclid and talk about what mathematicians have been doing and so forth. But yeah, I ended up thinking that climate science was simply not yet at a stage where I wanted to devote my life to it. Professor Bonnevac, if what you're saying is true, first of all, your description of your interest and the way you've developed also your interest in climate change and then went to philosophy would, I think, entitles you completely, of course, to speak about this. But I would also add that philosophers, by definition, are those who love knowledge and that doesn't specify necessarily where that knowledge is. So it's also an interesting knowing how we get to have knowledge on certain fields. And I think that this is particularly evident in the lecture you gave and the way you speak about climate change, which is not exactly what is the conclusion we reach, but is, wait a minute, are we, how are we getting there? So I think that this is a very philosophical, in the deepest sense of the word, approach. First question, we had an unprecedented for many snowstorm in Texas which, you know, caused a lot of issues, people without power, people without water. Is that evidence of climate change? I don't think so. In fact, the evidence linking climate change to extreme weather events of all kinds, heat waves, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, forest fires, extreme cold snaps, and so on, is very weak. People talk about that sort of thing a lot. But actually, even in the IPCC reports, that's the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, they list things involving this as having, at best, low to medium confidence. And when you try to look at the chains of reasoning that people sometimes come up with to make claims about these kinds of connections, it's all very tenuous. So I think any evidence that links climate change in the Arctic, for example, to cold weather in Texas it's pretty thin. There's not a lot of evidence to support that. Okay. Now that you gave me your answer, I think it's time for you to just, you know, tell us briefly, what are the reasons that lead you to this conclusion? So what, where are the scientific, let's say, problems or where is it that we do not have enough data and enough science? Right, right. Yes. Intriguingly, this winter turns out to be really cold over a wide region. Uh, the most recent measurements we have in the Arctic indicate that Arctic ice is increasing rapidly, which is startling because it's been decreasing for some decades and people have been worried a lot about that. 
But that seems to be reversing, at least for this. So it's not just Texas that has endured this cold snap for the Midwestern United States. The Arctic seems to be experiencing it too. And record low temperatures are being measured in northern areas in Greenland. And the ice cover there seems to be increasing suddenly. So that's one small indication of the fact that, first of all, whatever's going on here, it's not something that is the result of global warming. But the other thing is that even if patterns of ice in the Arctic are changing, how is that affecting weather patterns in other parts of the globe? We don't really have a firm grasp of how these things work. Even the La Nina and El Nino effects, which are probably the most studied phenomena of this sort, where currents in the Pacific have a significant impact on climate in other parts of the world, even that is usually left out of climate models because it's a complication that people can't quite handle. People do not have an adequate theory of what that is really doing and how it all works. So there simply is no theory that would tell us how temperature changes in Arctic regions, for example, would affect temperature changes elsewhere in the globe. Now, there are many other problems involving data that I'll talk about. But in this immediate way, you can say, well, first of all, we don't see all of a sudden, this warming that's supposed to be causing this cooling here. But for another thing, we simply don't have models that tell us about those kinds of relationships, even in the best studied cases. It's an area of climate science that's still relatively undeveloped. If what you're saying is true, what is the theory, the model that scientists are using and adopting? Let's say you criticize it because you you think We don't have enough data, but what are those data? So if we have a scientific almost consensus or a very wide agreement on the idea that climate change is happening and that humans are responsible, which is the other factor that um, I guess you'll want to talk about, but what is that scientists are using to claim that there is climate change and that we are responsible? Uh, Yeah, good question. In fact, let me start with an anecdote. Okay. A little more than a week ago, I was in this room reading a biography of Queen Elizabeth I, actually, and uh, it was cold. I had no power in the house, so no heat, and also no cell phone service or anything like that. But I did have a little temperature gauge. So I was thinking, gosh, it's cold in here. How cold? So I started pointing my little temperature reader at various spots in the room. And over there by the bookshelf behind me, it was 56 degrees. In the windows that are just right there, it was about 49 degrees. On the outside wall of the house, it was right around 51. On the inside wall here, maybe 58. I couldn't tell exactly what the temperature of this room was. Cesar Pavese once said, it's possible to have too much. Somebody with one clock knows what time it is. Somebody with Two clocks is never quite sure. (laughs) And so even the problem of what the temperature is in this room, if you start measuring the temperatures of different surfaces in the room, is hard to assess. You get different measurements all over the place. Now imagine extending that problem to the entire globe. How do people try to solve that problem? Well, one way of doing it is to have weather stations at various points around the globe taking surface temperature readings. And How reliable those are is hard to say. It's a complicated problem, partly because you have the difficulty of how do you sample 
representatively the entire surface of the globe. What about the ocean regions, for example? What about the poles where it's almost impossible to reach any place to put measuring devices? What do you do about the middle of the Sahara Desert and the deepest African jungles and, and so forth? So it's hard to do that, and it's hard to keep the equipment in good repair, and it's hard to really deal with problems like the urban heat island effect, where something that was in the middle of a cornfield suddenly is in the center of Omaha, let's say, as the city grows. And you have to figure out what effect that might be having. So anyway, we do have temperature readings going back more than a century. It is hard, however, to, to be sure about the quality of the data and whether that data is really representative. One of the problems we face is that there are large regions of the globe where there are no readings. And so what do you do about that? People typically extrapolate and try to fill in from the closest surrounding weather stations. But it's, for example, in Africa, there's a very large area where there are no stations and there are no readings. So you're basically extrapolating what's going on in the coasts of Africa to the jungles in the central region and to the Sahara Desert. And that may or may not be fairly representative. But that's just one source. Then we have oceanic measurements, which don't go back quite as far, but we do have several sets of ocean measurements at different depths. We also have satellite measurements of the atmosphere at different levels, some of them in the stratosphere, some in the troposphere at various heights and so forth. And there are two different satellite data sets that people tend to use. They largely agree, but not completely. So already we have complications there with surface and oceanic and various levels of atmospheric readings taken by satellites. Or weather balloons, that's another source that people use. In addition, sometimes people, when trees are cut down, examine tree rings and look at the amount of growth in the trees and use that as a way of trying to assess, especially distant past climate changes and temperatures. So in short, there are a lot of different sources that people have. And they don't always agree. So it becomes a problem of how you adjust that. It's as if you had several different ways of trying to measure the temperature of the room. And they are in broad agreement. They agree that when there's no heat and we've got a record cold wave, it's cooler here than it usually is. But they may disagree about how much cooler. And if we build mathematical models on that, we get a pretty wide range. So you were asking not only about data sets, but about models. So far, there have been at least 73 different climate models that people have used. And they vary substantially in their predictions about what's going to happen over the next century. In fact, they vary significantly about the way that they understand what's happened in the past 20 to 30 to 40 years. So there's a pretty wide range just among those models. In addition, all of them actually have overpredicted what has actually happened. If you look at the actual temperatures um, over the past 40 years, it turns out they've always been below what even the most careful of the climate models has predicted. So all of those are reasons for uncertainty. 
I don't think it's reason to dismiss climate models or to say, ah, the temperature data we have is worthless and so on. Not by any means. There's a lot that can be done with what people have. But there are a lot of sources of uncertainty there as well. Could we say, since we invited you to speak about this topic, because it is a very divisive topic and people seem not to be able to be in reasonable disagreement, what you are saying is basically saying, well, that's all we can have. It's just a field where we should have very honest conversations and discuss what are the models that we're using and why and what are those data. So it would be maybe the best example where we should hope to see dialogue starting again. Absolutely. It is not a field where there are very settled conclusions. <laughs> uh, people often want to say, especially politicians who are not scientists, want to say the science is settled, not by any means. There are a lot of questions to be raised. The very fact that there are 73 models that disagree quite sharply instead of one model can make you think already there's a lot to talk about. There are a lot of differences there. There are a lot of factors that are of, I think, obvious relevance to climate that are not included in models. When you start thinking about all the things in the natural world that affect climate, and then all the things that humans do that affect climate, Yeah, that's probably the question that I would like to reach immediately because that's the one that politicians address on, you know, on both sides of the divide, which takes for granted that there is a cause-effect relation and that there is a big cause-effect relation when it comes to human actions in the world that have an effect on climate. So first of all, could we a, could be sure that there is a cause-effect relation and it's not random? And so that the effects we see are not actually the results of human actions and to what extent humans are, you know, our actions are responsible for climate change. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an immensely hard question to answer. The first IPCC report done in 1995 in the original draft said this, no study to date has both detected a significant climate change and positively attributed all or part of that change to anthropogenic causes. So in short, there is simply no way to say we are significant changes or significant factors in climate change. The published report, however, said that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. That's what happened once the politicians got their hands on what the scientists had unanimously approved. They took something and said, there's no evidence of this, and suddenly said, there is evidence of this. But later reports have gone further in that direction and said, oh, there's very significant evidence. However, when you begin to examine this, you realize that it's not as strong as you might think. For one thing, our influence on carbon in the atmosphere, which people usually focus on as the main potential vehicle by which humans are affecting this, our effect on the carbon in the atmosphere is just much smaller than the routine uptake and absorption in the oceans, for example. It's less than organic sources that have to do with rotting vegetation. And so what is involved in industrial parts of our activities in particular is actually a pretty small percentage. So people measure the amount of CO2, for example, in the atmosphere, and they notice that it has increased significantly since 1950. But it's not obvious how much our activity 
is responsible for that. It's easy to say, oh, well, it's human activity. It's because of industrialization and so forth. And maybe, maybe, I, I'm not going to discount that. You're not that. saying I, no. You're just saying yes. I'm not saying maybe. no. Yeah. I just think we don't yet understand the way in which our activities relate to all of these other activities. And then that's assuming that carbon is a major causal factor. People usually discount other natural effects and claim that if they leave them out of their models, sorry, if they leave human activity out of the models, the models don't perform nearly as well. But they typically don't really take into account sunspot activity or other kinds of things that seem over a geological period to actually have significant impact on climate. It's a hard impact to measure year by year. But when you look at it over centuries, it seems to be a significant driver. So I think there's a lot of, what can we say, a lot of balance, you might say, between human activities as a potential cause and other natural or, for that matter, organic but non-human factors. And we don't really understand the mix of those very well. I think the models that try to take account of this and observe the differences often leave out key factors that you would want to put in as potential natural influences. Now, I should back up here and say one thing that complicates this is immensely is that a lot of people who build these models rely on, well, essentially, they don't make public exactly what's included in the model and exactly what is not. They don't generally share data. Now, sometimes they simply take over NOAA data or other things that are publicly available, but not always. And so one thing that's difficult here is say, well, what is, okay, that's what your model shows you if you leave out the human factors. It looks like, wow, it doesn't perform nearly as well. So it looks like human factors are very significant. But what exactly is going on in that model? What is being included? What's being left out? And often it's hard to get information about that. Certainly, it's not often in the published papers. You can't really tell exactly what the components of the model are or how they're interacting. And so that makes it, I think, hard to assess from the outside and evaluate how well or how sloppily some of the models are really taking account of the data. So you basically told us that, A, we do not have a way to measure whether climate change is happening. Second, we do not have clarity on how much we are actually contributing to it. Third point that I would ask, assuming that we knew one and two, that you're saying we don't, but assuming that we were knowing one and two, um, do we at least know for sure that climate change is bad or that climate change is good? Is there that, can that prediction be made in one way or another? I think that's a really important question. I don't think it's very clear at all what the overall effects are. People talk a lot about coastal cities being swamped and more and more extreme weather events and so forth. But as I've mentioned, those extreme weather events are actually very hard to tie to any overall climate patterns. We simply don't have models that are precise enough to allow us to do that. And when you look at overall patterns of tropical storms, tornadoes, severe tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, forest fires, and so on, there simply hasn't been an increase in these extreme events. They get more press. We find out about forest fires in Australia and 
tornadoes that strike Thailand and so forth. But that's a matter of press reporting improving internationally. It has nothing to do with the increased frequency of the, of the events. As far as we can tell, they have not really been increasing. And so that seems to me very thin. Now, there are supposed to be other sorts of impacts on, for example, plant and animal life. It's not very clear to me why one would expect that agriculture, for example, would be harmed by global warming. In fact, I would have thought that warmer temperatures and increased CO2 in the atmosphere would actually make plants thrive better (laughs) and that it would improve agriculture. It's going to obviously make some regions which are already having trouble with water and so on. It may make things worse there because it may change rainfall patterns. But rainfall too and cloud cover, all of these are things that are not really well understood and not thoroughly incorporated into the models. So we really can't say what the effects will be on rainfall, on cloud cover and so forth. Certain areas that are not now suffering droughts might start suffering them. On the other hand, some areas that are too cold for crop production might become warm enough. So I think it's a good question. I think we do not know at all whether on balance this will be good for human beings or other life on the planet or not. Could we say, as a very non-expert, non-scientist, could we say that the only thing that could look good um, to us is if we were able to keep what we have absolutely unchanged? So no colder and no warmer, because that's what we know. And the problem I mean, it's funny with the title of this podcast, but the problem is that we can't know how things would be either way. <laughs> yes. One thing that I have wondered about in all of this is what would be an ideal climate for the Earth? Is it what it is right now? Is it what it was when, let's say, in 1979? Was that an ideal climate? How do we know? Should we be alarmed that it's warmer now than it was in 1963, which is, I think, very clearly true? Temperatures declined significantly from 1940 to the mid-1960s, at least, and remained below significantly below where they had been earlier until about 1979. So we've already seen temperatures decline significantly in that period of roughly 40 years from 1940 to 1980. We've seen them increase overall since 1980, but mostly 1980 to 1997, say. Then there was what's often called the gap, the the hiatus in global warming, until 2016, which was a very warm year. But then things more or less went back to a kind of random pattern. So It was mostly that 1980 to 2000 period that was significant warming. And people do agree about that, even if they disagree about the overall patterns. So we've already seen just within the last less than a century, significant changes in these climate patterns. And there were some good effects and bad effects, but we didn't see major disasters of any kind. Throughout that period, sea level has been rising gradually, at least as measured in certain places, like Battery Park in New York, for example, there's a measurement station there. But that seems to have gone on in pretty much a straight line, no matter what's been happening to the temperature or CO2 and so forth. So I think it's a good question. What Look, if you could design, if you could geoengineer the Earth to stay at one temperature, what would you choose? And how would you decide what to choose? 
I don't see an obvious answer to that question. I find that in terms of the biography of researchers in this field, they often take their own childhoods as, okay, that's what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> yeah, as if we basically want to keep what we know around us, right? So that we do not need to address changes, which course, change is scary. I wanted to ask you, did you have a chance to look at the most recent publication by Bill Gates on the topic titled How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need, published February 23rd, 2021? I read a news report about it. I haven't read it yet. Are you eager to read it? Are you curious? No. Do you know? <laughs> No, partly because, I mean, one thing that a number of climate scientists themselves have said is that even if global warming is happening and we are causing a significant part of it, and even if that's bad, and I think those are all three rather uncertain claims, they might be true, but I don't think we can say them with a high degree of confidence. What do we do about it? I don't think it's at all obvious what the solution is. And I don't think it's obvious that we can afford even to have a significant impact on climate. So there are two, uh, there are essentially two strategies. One strategy is to reduce human activity that is leading to increased carbon emissions. That means reducing essentially, well, power usage, energy usage, as well as maybe trying to change land use patterns, agricultural patterns, and things of that kind. And then the other involves geoengineering. And I think Gates is getting in, interested in that, doing things like releasing things in the atmosphere that will deflect the sun's rays. I worked here with a professor in the scary uh, engineering school on such matters because he was arguing for that. But it's a very scary prospect. Suppose you do that and the effects are not what you anticipated. Or suppose... I, I mean, recently, there has not been much sunspot activity. And so a number of people have begun worrying that either we're going to be headed into some global cooling, or at least that human activity is what's saving us from global cooling right now. And if all that's true, and we stop further rays from the sun, we could be in real trouble. Think about what's happened in the globe when we've had major volcanic eruptions in the past. One of the years in the 19th century was described as the year without a summer because of a volcanic eruption, I think in Southeast Asia, that produced so much stuff in the atmosphere that the crops never grew. There were widespread famines. So it's a dangerous thing to contemplate. People have sometimes talked about towing icebergs or something like that to try to cool some regions. Things like that might cool a certain area but it's not going to change, one would think, the overall absorption of energy or reflection of energy in the Earth. So in the end, it's going to change the distribution of temperatures. It's not going to change overall things. But doing things to deflect solar energy, yes. That, now, some things that people have recommended are probably easy to do. For example, changing roofing materials or even the color of roofs. That would be an easy way of reflecting solar energy and trying to keep it from being absorbed. It would not be terribly expensive. It would be easy to change if we find out weight. You know, notice goes out, paint your roofs black instead of white. <laughs> that could be done. So, but yeah, things like let's put a lot of reflective material into the atmosphere. That's a very scary idea. 
Yeah, you just reminded me that we also take it always for granted that tomorrow we'll see the sun again. And, (laughs) you know, I can imagine the scientific community going crazy one day because, oh, there is no sun anymore. It's like, what did we miss in the model? Like, what was not in the model? And then, (laughs) right, trying to figure it out. Yeah, so, so many things that we take for granted. And, but I would invite again everyone to just watch the lecture you gave for us because I think you exactly talk about many things that people take for granted and that we should not take for granted. And then as a final question, what I would like to ask you is if people listening to this podcast got really mad at you and think that you really got it all wrong, what could we suggest to them and to the broader public anyway, to just have a clear idea of what are the issues and problems and lack of data that you're describing? Are there books, articles, publications that you would recommend? Yes, absolutely. There's a really good website called What's Up With That? Watt spelled like the, you know, kilowatt type thing. And that is a terrific source, not only of research that is, you might say, challenging the mainstream consensus in the climate change area, but also just a very good repository for information about scientific results as they come out. So that's one thing I would recommend. A second thing is the writings of Bjorn Lomborg. He takes climate change quite seriously, but he also thinks that people exaggerate the harms and undersell the costs of doing anything about it. So he has a book, in fact, a wonderful book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. And he says, look, it's not that I'm denying climate change. He's a believer in it. But he also thinks that amounts of money that people are contemplating spending on the Green New Deal and other things could be used in so much more effective ways in other areas. Essentially, he says, look, people are about to spend vast sums wastefully when there are a few things that we could do that actually would immensely help the human condition for far less of an expense. So I would recommend that. The other thing that's a general bit of advice I give people, especially in conditions like this where Politicians are manipulating things for their own ends, and the press cannot be trusted to do a competent job because the average reporter does not know the science and doesn't just is not as well-trained, I think, in particular areas they cover as reporters used to be. Go to the primary sources. Don't just read an article on especially a, a website that, you know, some news thing that refers to some study. Click on the link, go to the study, look at the actual thing that the scientist is saying, because often there are a lot of limitations described in the actual scientific paper that get missed utterly by the people who then make use of this. And sometimes you read the paper and you find out, wait, it doesn't say that at all. It says something very different. Or at other times you look at it and you say, well, there's an obvious flaw in this that's not a legitimate conclusion to draw. Or sometimes you simply see the scientists themselves saying, look, essentially, this is what seems to be going on, but there are a lot of things that are omitted from the study. This is a call for further research into the area. And of course, all of that gets left out of the news reports. So always go to the original source. People who say, oh, we want to follow the science, often don't know the science and have a cardboard cutout version of it rather than the real thing. So look at what scientists are actually saying. 
Thank you very much, Professor Bonavac. This was a great, great, great conversation. And again, I invite our audience to go watch the lecture online. And I look forward to having you again on our podcast and for our events at the Austin Institute. So thank you again. Oh, happy to do it. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.